Thank you for joining us on the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org. This week's message is by Steve Fowler. Hey, we're in this uh, series, uh, it's called This Changes Everything, and we've been talking about how despair has been, been changed, and, and now we have hope, and how, uh, how we have this God who seemed distant, and now, now he's near, his name is Emmanuel, he's God with us. Last week, Rob Basham talked to us about how the light has come, and, uh, and pierced the darkness, and, uh, and today I want, I want to just kind of wrap up that series uh, for us. Uh, a lot of years ago... Um, when my kids were younger and my parents were still living in Hong Kong, China, we went to go visit them. We would do that often so the kids could see their grandparents. I could go back to my hometown. And uh, on one of those trips, uh, we decided we'd do an excursion. Uh, we made a trip up north into China and went to Beijing and did all the touristy things that you want to do in Beijing, China. And we did it with our kids. Uh, we went to Tiananmen Square and explored that. We hiked the Great Wall of China. And then we, we set aside this one day uh, to visit the Forbidden City. Um, and if you've never seen the Forbidden City, it's this massive complex of buildings. Here's a kind of a, it's a smaller picture of it. 183-acre walled city in a city, uh, 79 buildings, 9,999 rooms in this, in this city. Uh, 24 emperors lived in, the, in this uh, forbidden city over 500 years. The, the Ming and the Qing Dynasty uh, was, was the time of that. And uh, this is an incredible place to, to visit. When you get it inside, there's this moat that has been dug. It's 18 feet deep. Uh, around, around the city, and there's walls uh, 32 feet high, and all of it is communicating, stay out. It's the Forbidden City. It's named the Forbidden City for a reason. And, and rarely did the emperors of China ever come out of the Forbidden City. And so we, uh, we got to explore this as a family, and we got started on this hot, humid day uh, there in Beijing, China. It didn't really start out great because Trina, the night before uh, we were having dinner, she ordered this bowl of noodles. Uh, and halfway through the meal, she realized it wasn't noodles. It was, uh, it was uh, some kind of strips of intestine from an animal, and, um, and her stomach was, uh, it was, it was in full uprising that next morning. <laughs> I'll just say that. And so it was a rough start. The kids were a little bit tired. I mean, they were young at that, at that age, and so it was hot and humid, and they, they were thirsty. And, um, and we went to this little popsicle stand, had these chocolate popsicles, and so we bought popsicles for everybody. And as we took our first bite, we realized it's not chocolate. Uh, it's red bean flavored and green tea flavored popsicles, which then sort of sent our kids in a tailspin. They didn't want to eat any more of those, so they threw those in the garbage. And, um, and I just implored my kids and my wife, just keep pressing on. There's, there's good stuff here. Just keep moving forward. I'm sure we'll find some place in this forbidden city that we'll get some relief. Just let's keep moving. And we took in the sights. And it was, it's, it's a magnificent place to visit. And, and we got into courtyard after courtyard after courtyard. And I, I think we were in like courtyard like number nine or 10. And we walked through the gates and we saw something. And instantly, joy flooded our souls. Glee poured through our veins. There in the center of the forbidden city in Beijing, China, is Starbucks. 
And we're like, we all looked at each other like, beeline for Starbucks. And we were there ordering frappuccinos and iced coffees. And we're sitting there and just soaking it all up. And we're loving it. And the kids are happy again. And Trina's glad there's a bathroom there. And we're just, I mean, it's a great moment. And as I'm, as I'm sitting there in Starbucks with my family, it just dawns on me, this moment. We are sitting in the forbidden city of China, the imperial palace, 24 emperors over 500 years. No one can get into the city and rarely do the emperors get out. And here we are in the middle of this forbidden place at Starbucks. (laughs) And how did Starbucks get into the forbidden city in the first place? Well, the answer to that is money, like a lot of money. But if you follow the breadcrumbs back, you go back to 1971, little unknown coffee shop in Seattle, Washington. And there's this founder and this nondescript place that sells beverage that people thought was kind of ridiculous at the time. And in this leader was this vision of what was happening here in Seattle would happen there and there and there. It would happen everywhere and and that that vision was realized right some of you have traveled and how many have a starbucks mug from a place that you've traveled to somewhere in the world okay how many a lot so a lot of you how many collect starbucks mugs how many would like one because i got too many because i collect them wherever i go yeah yeah i see those hands um starbucks is everywhere and and that's no surprise right because you have all these, these, these companies, at Coca-Cola and Apple and Google, uh, McDonald's, everywhere you go. It's like, they're there. They've gone from here to everywhere. And, and the Christmas story, by the way, that, that's not a new idea, this here to everywhere. As we look at the Christmas story, this has been going on for a long, long, long time. There is a here in God's heart that he longed to have it go everywhere. There's a, there's a here in him that wants to go everywhere. And when it goes everywhere, it changes everything. It, it, the Christmas story is this Christmas-sized vision that when it's unveiled, it just, it just it goes everywhere and it crosses oceans and seas. The good news of a baby born in Bethlehem ascends to the highest mountains and descends into the deepest, darkest, darkest valleys. This good news of a Messiah born in a manger uh, it's, it's declared in hamlets and villages and the most densely populated cities of our world. Yet, there's this drastic difference of this Christmas-sized vision that God has in the here in his heart that he wants experienced everywhere to that of Starbucks or McDonald's or Coke or any other company that's gone global. It's in the how it happens. God does it so differently And you might even say in such an odd way, such a strange way that he unveils his Christmas-sized vision. And this last weekend before Christmas, what I want to do is I just want to point out some of those ways that he unveils his Christmas-sized vision, how he takes the here in his heart and has to go everywhere and changes everything. And I want to show you how different it is the way he does it versus the way we do it and the implications for us today. So let me begin in the book of Genesis. Genesis, and you don't, you don't have to go very many pages in the Genesis, and you see some foreshadowing of the Christmas story. It's a little hard to see, but it gets a lot clearer when you get a little bit farther. Genesis chapter 15, you meet this guy, you introduce this guy named a- Abram. He's going to be called Abraham. He has a wife named Sarah. 
And he's left his country, his, his, his city of origin, and moved to a place that God's invited him to. And he's never been there before. He's never seen it before. But he trusts God. And he makes this move. And in this move, God makes a promise to him. He and his wife, they, they don't have kids. And they would long to have an heir, a son. And so God promise, promises him he's going to have a son. And, um, and, and he makes the promise. But, you know, time goes by. And the promise is not being realized. And Abraham's in one of those moments that you could probably relate to where he's having a hard time seeing this being realized, this promise of God. The window of opportunity for him and his wife is closing. They're getting older. And, um, and so he's, he's beginning to think that perhaps it's his chief servant that's going to be the heir. That, that would be the custom of the day if you didn't have kids and you want to pass on your inheritance. Um, maybe it's the chief servant that's going to get his inheritance and uh, God takes him out of his tent one night, pulls him out underneath the stars and has something to say to him about that. And Genesis 15 captures it. It says, then the Lord took Abram outside and said to him, look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. And you hear that story, and here Abram has this promise, and he's not seeing it, it's not happening yet, and, and he's discouraging. God says, I want you to look at the stars in the, in the sky, Abram. I want you to see those, and I want you to know that your descendants are going to outnumber. I know you don't have any kids right now, but your descendants are going to outnumber the stars. And then it says, next sentence, Abram believed the Lord. And you, you've got to think for a moment. Wasn't there kind of like a little bit of a hitch? A millisecond, a second, a minute, 10 minutes? Was there a moment when Abraham was kind of going, I, I, just, I just don't see it. I'm having trouble seeing it. You ever been there? Where God's spoken to you and he says something? And that was here and, and time has gone by and, and you just... The window of opportunity is closing and you just can't see it anymore. I mean, how's this gonna happen? There's some of you in the room that can completely identify with Abraham and Sarah. You want a child. And you're in the throes of a struggle with infertility. And hope rises and then the disappointment comes. Time and time again. And you sense that God's speaking to you and yet it's just... It's not happening. It's hard to see. For some in the room, it's a prodigal child, a son or a daughter who's wandered. And you've been praying for months, for years, maybe even for decades for that child who's gone spiritually AWOL to come back home. And nothing's changed. And you, there's nothing that would necessarily give you hope. You can't see it. For others of you, you're dealing with a, a chronic illness. There's a struggle you're going through in your body. It's, maybe it's a diagnosis and you've been sensing that God's, he's promised healing for you, but healing hasn't been realized and it feels like the window of opportunity is closing. See, this, this is the reality of the Christmas-sized vision. It's hard to see. It's hard to see it. And God has to take Abram outside of his tent and say, look at the stars in the sky and your descendants are gonna outnumber those. And Abraham is in this moment where he can't see it yet. His faith is strong enough and large enough that he will believe even though he can't see it. It's what the writer of Hebrews would call faith is this thing that we're sure of. Um, we have this, this faith as being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we cannot see. 
We are a people who have to see it before we believe it, but Abraham was the opposite. And in that text I just read, what, 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 what happens here is the Lord sees this about Abraham and counts him as righteous. He gives him the gift, he credits to him righteousness. Abraham will be right in God's sight. Now Paul picks up on this in Galatians chapter three. He says, in the same way, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. The real children of Abraham then, get this, the real children of Abraham then are those who put their faith in God. What's more, the scriptures look forward to this time when God would make the Gentiles right in his sight because of their faith. God proclaimed this good news to Abraham long ago when he said, all nations will be blessed through you. So all who put their faith in Christ share the same blessing Abraham received because of his faith. Everyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ as the Messiah receives the same gift Abraham received, which is righteousness. That God would declare people who believe in a Messiah as righteous and holy in his sight. Now Abraham and Sarah are gonna have, they're gonna have a child, Isaac, in their old age. But you gotta see what, what the writer, what, what, what Paul was saying here in Galatians chapter three. Friends, you are the stars in that sky, metaphorically speaking, that God was talking to Abraham about. That you and I, those who have put our, our faith in Christ, that we are the descendants of Abraham. And for Abraham, on that night, that starry night, when he looked up, he couldn't see it. But fast forward through time and see what God has done. Today, in our world, December 2018, there are 2.3 billion Christ followers on this planet. That's, that's, a lot of, that's a lot of descendants of Abraham. And the family is large. And Abraham, the, the, the descendants truly are outnumbering the stars. And friends, at this Christmas, we celebrate the Messiah born in a manger. We celebrate the fact that we can have righteousness through this Messiah. And we, we celebrate here in Salem, Oregon, but people all around the world are celebrating this great gift that has been given to them. We look, at, we look through it our, through our American eyes. We image our, our, our perspective kind of on the Christmas story. And we're not the only ones who do that. That happens all around the world because everyone is part of this family. And we, we all bring our unique perspective. We have our Western worldview of what the Christmas day looked like, at that, that day when Jesus is born in a manger. But check out some of these pictures. Check out China. Look at this painting of, of the nativity scene in, in, in China. I'm sure you've never seen that. Ethiopia, the three kings coming to visit baby Jesus. This is that perspective. This is from India. An, an Indian artist paints this, the three wise men coming to visit uh, baby Jesus. This is from Malaysia. This is from, in their perspective, this is Russia, the Russian perspective of, of that day. Uh, this, this is Thailand. You probably never knew there were water buffaloes around, around the me. But that's, this is what, we looked at it through our experience. And there's joy. This is Venezuela. The, the journey of Mary to Bethlehem from a Venezuelan perspective. And this next one's from a galaxy far, far away. I just couldn't resist. <laughs> I had to throw it in there. Okay, unsee that for a moment. Just unsee that for a moment. Because here's the point. Here's the point, friends. On that Middle Eastern night, the sun had set. It was a clear, cloudless night. 
And there was Abraham and Sarah, no kids. God is unveiling his Christmas-sized vision. It's hard to see. It's hard, it's hard to see. And yes, look what he's done, but, but here you are today. And God's made some promises to you as well. So let me ask you this question. Put up in the screen. Where are you having a hard time seeing God? Where, where, are you, where, where have you heard from God? You say, God, I just, I'm having a hard time seeing this. Is my window of opportunity closing? I, I, can't, I can't see God. Where, where is that? And, and with that, there's an invitation to express faith. Like Abraham. This, I, I can't see it, but I put my faith in you, Jesus, because, because you're trustworthy. God unveils his Christmas-sized vision in such a different way than we would. It's hard to see. The second thing is that, 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 I don't know if you notice this, but God, he, he's, he's slow. God moves at this pace. It's, it's the pace of the tortoise rather than the hare. He, he just seems to take his time. And that bugs me. You probably don't have this problem, but I, I, prefer, I prefer fast. I prefer quick, efficient, productive, get it done, on to the next thing. I mean, this happens in all kinds of areas of my, of my life. I mean, when Tree and I were first having kids, and she got pregnant with Beth, and had her, we had Beth, and you know, that labor for her, for Trina, was a multi-hour experience. And then uh, Beth was born and she had some health complications and um, we had extra days in the hospital. Compare and contrast our labor experience with our first child, with our last child, Cal. Trina was in labor for 25 minutes. <laughs> we, we didn't even make it to the hospital. We walked in the front door of the hospital and I delivered Cal in the lobby of the hospital. And it was quick and efficient and very... <laughs> Very cheap, too, I'm just telling you. The bill was not very big. I, I like quick. I, I like efficient. I want things done now. I mean, some of you aren't even old enough to remember this, but there was a day when you wanted to take a picture of something, you had this little film cartridge that had this little dog ear on it, and um, it had like, this cartridge could have 12 or 24 or 36 exposures on it. You'd put it in your camera, you'd, you'd pull the film out very carefully, tuck it in this little you know, notch, and you'd turn this dial, and you'd close the back, and um, some of you are so young, you're like, what? what, what when did this happen? Uh, well, some of our lifetime, lifetimes. Um, and then what you would do is you would take pictures, but you couldn't see them. You took pictures and you hoped that people's eyes were open, you hoped that the lighting was right, and, and then when you got done with your little cartridge taking pictures, which by the way, you could have like a span of a couple months or even like a year or a year and a half on this cartridge. If you misplaced it, you find it years later. You take it to a store to have it developed and it would, tell, it would take over a week. And you go pick up your pictures and you go, oh man. It's like, that didn't turn out. And everyone's like, oh, fine, I got a good picture of our family. I got a good picture of that scenery. And, um, and it just took time. But then, 
Then someone invented a camera. They invented the Polaroid camera and poof, right? Just like you pull this little trigger and this little plastically square comes out and it's opaque and you look at it and in like 10 to 15 minutes, that's fast. It, it, would, it, would, it would slowly, the outlines of an image would begin to develop and you would see it and, and I don't know why we did this, but we'd take the thick end and we'd just shake it like that and we'd bang it against our leg and we thought that that would make it quicker because we like quick. And in 10 or 15 minutes, you'd see the image and, and we thought, wow, what a great improvement in technology. And then we all have phones now, Right? You take a picture with your phone, you take a picture, you look at it, you, just, you can burst a picture, 20 pictures at one time. You pick which one you want, you, you take it and you put it through some little you know, app on your phone and you edit it and you make it look just perfect like a professional photographer and you post it to social media. It's done in seconds. We like that. That's how Starbucks unveiled their vision from here to everywhere. Less than 20 years, they're in a forbidden city. God... His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And he's slow. Matthew chapter one. It's the genealogy, the beginning of Matthew's gospel. Uh, This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, descendant of David and of Abraham. Oh, there's that guy Abraham. Matthew is rooting the Christmas story in a promise made to Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. And some of you are thinking right now, oh, dear God, I hope he doesn't read all these names. Because you're thinking, I'll read Matthew chapter one when I have trouble sleeping one night. Or I'll, 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 I've read this before, and I think it inspired Ancestry.com, but I just don't understand anything about this as a value. What in the world is going on here? Friends, I wish I had the time to tell you how incredibly rich these first 16 verses of Matthew are. This is is the resume of the Messiah. And when you're putting forth a resume of a Messiah, you put all the good names on it. You know, the crazy uncle, leave it aside. And if you're gonna name women like Matthew does, you name prominent women. Sarah, Elizabeth, Esther, Names like that, prominent names. You don't list names of people who, pros, who pose as a prostitute or who are prostitutes or who committed adultery. You don't put that in your resume. I wish I had time to unpack that. I wish I had un- a time to unpack the reality that, that Jesus has multiple nations in his bloodline. He's not purebred Jewish. No, he, he, he's, he's got mixed blood. But what I do want to highlight for us is in verse 17, all those listed above include 14 generations from Abraham, the guy who had the promise, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the Babylonian exile, and 14 from the Babylonian exile to the Messiah. Here's what Matthew's saying. Friends, God's on the move. And it seems like there's a pattern. Every 14 generations, something significant happens. God is on the move and David comes after 14 generations and the golden age of Israel is launched. 14 generations later, it's the not so golden age. Israel is exiled to Babylon. 14 generations later, friends, the time is right, God's on the move. 
a Messiah is gonna be born in Bethlehem. That's what Matthew is getting at here in verse 17. But what you have to see is from that moment where God gives this promise to Abraham that's so hard to see. 42 generations are played out before a baby's born in a manger. This Christmas-sized vision, it's hard to see. It's just, God unveils it so slowly. He just takes his time, which prompts a question for us. Where is God not moving quickly enough for me? God's spoken to you. It's hard to see. Feels like the window of opportunity is closing. And, and, and now, I'm just, God, could you, this waiting thing is tough. Could you just put a little bit of weight on the accelerator? Could you just, just give me a little hope? Where is that in your life right now? Where God's not moving quick enough for you. It's an invitation to once again reaffirm your trust in a God whose timing is always perfect. I wish it was in a way that made it more comfortable for us. But we affirm our trust in a God who knows exactly when to move in our lives. He did that with the Christmas-sized vision. It's so different than the Starbucks and the McDonald's and the Cokes of the here to everywhere. God's going from the here in his heart to everywhere, and it's gonna change everything. And it's hard to see, and it's slow. And this third aspect, I just, I mean, it's I'm not gonna like this, but it also involves pain and suffering. It, it involves trials and tribulations, difficulty, struggle. See, I, I think my fear is that what we have done is we have domesticated the Christmas story. We've taken this moment when Christ enters our world, this, this, this moment we've, when we've sung songs like Silent Night, Holy Night, All is Calm, All is Bright, and that's a good song. I don't want to ruin it for us. We'll sing it on Christmas Eve. It's Silent Night, Holy Night, you know, All is Calm, All is Bright, or it came upon a midnight clear, oh, little town of Bethlehem, and it just, it's so, it's so hallmarky. It's just so quaint. And we want to put it on a nice little Hallmark card and put it on the mantle and just all gather around, light candles and sing. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. But what you have to understand is that you're domesticating the story. Because there's so much more that's going on. Revelation chapter 12, John the disciple, the apostle, gives us a glimpse into the, into the spiritual realm. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. It's a picture of Satan's fall from heaven. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. 
Friends, what's happening in the spiritual realm is also being played out in the natural realm. And Matthew again picks this up, chapter two. The wise men have gone to visit Herod looking for a king. Herod is not happy there's a rival king. He wants the wise men to come back. They don't. And it says Herod was furious when he realized the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. Herod's brutal action fulfilled what God had spoken to the prophet Jeremiah. A cry was heard in Ramah. Weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. Friends, you got to pull that manger off that Hallmark card and you have to place it on a battlefield. You got to put it on Omaha Beach at D-Day. You got to put it in the Twin Towers. You got to take the manger and put it in Homs, Syria in the Syrian war when it's that full-blown Syrian war. This, this is the picture that God gives us of Christmas Day. It's not a way in the manger, it's a war in the manger. And one of the beautiful things that we see is, is yes, there's a battle going on, but here's where it gets rich. God fought for you. He fought for you. He went to war for you so that you could be reconciled to him. You matter that much to him that he would send his son into such a precarious situation, so vulnerable. And if it wasn't for a responsive and obedient parents, you know, Mary and Joseph who were warned by an angel who then picked up their child and fled like refugees to Egypt, the, the enemy would have devoured this child. And he took that risk because of you. Because he loves you. And he wants to be in relationship and friendship with you. And he likes you. But we have a master, a messiah, who entered into a world full of tribulation and trouble. And he suffered. He went from the cradle to the cross. He went to the cross and he suffered and he did it on purpose so that he could pay everyone's sin debt. And he then said to all of us who follow after him in the way, he says, in this world you have trouble. He said, deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Friends, this Christmas-sized vision, it's hard to see, it's slow, it's a struggle. There's pain and suffering and you gotta know that if you got into this relationship with Jesus, you, you have to realize that that doesn't make you immune from suffering. In fact, there's a call to suffer and to suffer well. We need a healthy theology of power and miracles and resurrection power. But we also need to embrace the theology of suffering, just as our Messiah did. We're not immune to that pain and that suffering. And, and if we think that we got into this relationship with Jesus because he would keep all that away, and indeed, he is our protector, he's our deliverer, he is our healer. It doesn't mean that everything gets through and strikes at us, but sometimes the pain does come. And if you're living under the illusion that you are immune to that, that illusion will give birth to a disillusionment. And you may distance yourself from the Messiah. Let me just ask you a quick question. 
Have I in any way bought into a pain-free gospel? Our Christ, he came and he suffered and he died. In the cradle to the cross, his body was placed in a tomb. Friends, on the third day, Jesus was resurrected and he conquered death. But that whole journey, it involves suffering and struggle. Now, here's what, this, here's what happens. When it's hard to see and it's happening slowly and you kind of feel the tension in your own soul about God, can, can, can you just move a little quicker? And then you're experiencing suffering. Here's what, here's what it creates in us. It creates a longing It creates a longing within us for a day when all the suffering will be wiped out, when we'll be able to see him fully face to face, when when we'll be ushered into his presence in in the blink of an eye, quickly, and we'll be reunited with him and we will see him face to face, every tear wiped away, every disease eradicated, every form of oppression and injustice completely just, it disappears. Because the Prince of Peace will rule with justice. And every form of what is wrong will be wiped out and all will be made right. Because we'll be with him forever. He's come once, he's coming again. Now, many of you know my story and some of you have heard this before, but my parents were missionaries in Hong Kong and my parents, when I was very young, had to make a difficult decision. And the decision had to do with the education of their kids and... Uh, I was nine, my brother was 11, my sister was still pretty young, and uh, my parents made the hard decision of sending um, their two kids, their boys, um, to boarding school. And I, I remember them talking to us about that, I had no idea what they were talking about, I just knew a change was coming. I'm nine year old, I'm living in Hong Kong, and I'm going to boarding school for the first time. My dad was gonna travel with me the first time just to make sure that we, you know, we got on the right plane and all that kind of stuff. And I remember being in the airport and there was, the mission team was there. And there was so much sadness, and sorrow. And my mom was bawling her eyes out. And we cried too, and we didn't really know all that was going on, but we got on this plane with my dad, and he took us to Malaysia. And I remember as the plane was descending into Penang, Malaysia, I looked out, and I, just, I lived in this huge city, and, I'm, and we're landing, and all I could see is palm trees and jungle. And we land there and um, dad takes us to school and drops us off in a room and um, I introduced my roommates from Thailand and Cambodia and Vietnam and their parents are missionaries and um, we're all MKs in the school, about 150 of us. Dad goes home. And um, that was our rhythm. We'd, we'd do eight months out of the year in boarding school and four months at home. And it was four months in the fall and then four months in, in, in the spring and, and into summer. But that first, first time was August. And you know, that first summer, uh, I mean, sorry, that first um, semester was really hard. I remember every night just crying myself to sleep. Week number one, my brother gets the mumps. Week number two, I got the mumps. Week number four, my brother got the measles. Week number six, I got the measles. Somewhere around the middle of that first semester, my brother was camping at a beach and a, 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 a viper came out and bit him on the foot and they had to rush him to the hospital and cut part of his foot out. 
Can you imagine being a parent and getting a letter, not an email, a letter that probably took two weeks to get home? Hey, your son has had this happen, that happened, this happened. Oh, got bit by a venomous snake, but he's okay. I just kind of cut part of his foot out. And as we're going to school and we're going through this terrible time, it's the middle of the Vietnam War. I had a roommate whose parents were abducted and were missing for nine months. He cried himself asleep every night. And we had this calendar that kept track of the chores and it was in weeks. You had certain chores every week and when week one got done, you just drew a line through it and that way you knew what your chores were over the next week. And it quickly became kind of our going home calendar. Four months, 18 weeks. Line by line, just mark 18 weeks left. And 17 weeks left. 16 weeks left. When you got to like 10 weeks left, you thought, you know, there's a bit, feels like a hinge here. And we're getting to single digits now. And, and then you get to like week six in the fall and they have a Thanksgiving banquet. And then it felt like, oh, we're getting close. We celebrated Thanksgiving and nothing like we do here in America. I mean, um, but it was, a, it was a Thanksgiving banquet and we knew it was about six weeks before going home. Then the Christmas banquet would come and we knew that we're just a couple weeks away from going home. And a week later, they would post on this bulletin board uh, an announcement of, of, of what time your flight was going home and who was your van driver and which kids from different countries would go home. And we'd all stand around that bulletin board and we'd look at it and we'd see when we were going home. And, and then the day would come, you'd pack all your belongings in a suitcase and you would, you would get out to the van and we were all so full of joy. Some of us were, you know, I was going back to Hong Kong with my brother, but the kids going back to Irian Jai and Indonesia and India and Cambodia and Vietnam and the Philippines and we were just, just scattering back to our homes and we were so excited because we were going home. And my brother and I got on that plane and we flew the three and a half hours it took to get back to Hong Kong when the wheels would touch down at the airport then right, right in the middle of the city of Hong Kong. There's was a sense of, we're almost home. And we'd walk off that plane and we'd go to baggage claim. We'd get our bag. And there was this doors outside of baggage claim, glass doors, you walk to them, they open up. And yet you sort of make your way there and you walk through the doors and you turn, you make a hard left. And there's this ramp that's going down to a greeting area and there's hundreds of people in the greeting area, and there, my brother, at the top of this ramp, we looked down in the sea of people, and there, in the middle of all those people, is a six-foot Caucasian male <laughs> with his hands in the air. Home. My mom's like five-foot-one, so she's <laughs> down there. And we'd go down that ramp and arms would be wrapped around us. And we were home. My parents had this tradition of then taking us and then we went to the only McDonald's at that time in Hong Kong. Now there's hundreds. The only, we ate as many Big Macs as we wanted. It was our version of the wedding feast of the lamb. We just stuffed ourselves. Because we were home. We were home. And the tears were wiped away. 
And we were together again. Friends, you got to get this. You're going home one day. You're going, Matthew chapter 24, verse 14 says that when this good news of the kingdom is preached to the ends of the earth, then the king will come. Friends, the good news has reached the ends of the earth. The here in God's heart has gone everywhere and this changes everything. In fact, the everywhere is now coming here, right? And there will be a moment we'll be snatched up and we will see him as he is. It will happen quickly and all pain and suffering will be wiped away and all that anticipation that was building up in us to be face to face with our king will be realized and we will experience unparalleled joy forever. And this is the gift of Christmas. That a little baby born in a manger hard to see took so long so much struggle why couldn't have been easier a cross a tomb an empty tomb and anticipation builds and a hope will be realized a Christmas sized vision of the hearing God's heart to the everywhere in the world, unveiled in ways we're not used to seeing it unveiled. Friends, this is the gift of Christmas. And this is our Messiah. Let's pray together. So Lord, thank you. Father, we see so little. Would you forgive us for questioning? I know you're okay with the questions. I know that you're, you're even okay with complaints. Would you cause faith to rise in our hearts? Would you forgive us, Lord, when we're impatient? Would you cause our trust to be reaffirmed in you? Lord, would you be our defender and our protector? And when we do suffer, would you be our healer? And Lord, in these days when we look forward to Christmas morning with great anticipation, we have one eye on the manger and one eye on the skies. And we say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We can't wait for the day we get to see you face to face. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us on the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. We are a community of believers located in downtown Salem, Oregon, and we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. If you have a request that we could pray for, please email us at prayers at salemalliance.org. If you'd like more information about this podcast or other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org.